you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. You just believe like, well, this is, this is the end. I knew it. Uh, Timothy LaHaye was right, and everything's about to burn. I'm just going to sit back and watch fun YouTube videos and wait for the rapture, because this has got to be it. It couldn't have ever been worse in history than this. This is the end. Here we go. I knew I was waiting for this. All the bad guys burn, and we all get to get vacuum sucked out of here, go to heaven, and have no responsibility for the planet. This is going to be great. Are my feelings showing a little bit? Sorry. Um... <laughs> Is that what we do? Do we, do we jump in? Do we throw our lot in with, with some other movement and let that sort of pick us up and carry us along and just sort of get swept along with some other good movement? What, what do we do? I want to say, I think now more than ever, maybe more than any other time in history, now is the time for the sons of God, for the people of God to pick up our mantle, to fulfill our ministry, and to preach our message of the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that it can fix all of these problems because ultimately the, what the gospel sets right is the cause of every one of the problems that I just mentioned. Every single issue finds its resolution in the gospel. I think we need to recognize that that's our responsibility. If we do not preach it, it will not be preached. If we do not carry that mantle, the mantle will not be carried. If we do not fulfill that mission, that mission will not be fulfilled. If you disagree with me, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 21, I'm a pastor, I'm prepared, I win. <laughs> but none of you disagree with me, you all love me and you're all like excited about it. So that's fine, that's for other people. What we've got to understand is that's, that's our responsibility. And yet I, I fear that part of the reason why we fail to fulfill that ministry, why we fail to carry that mantle, why we fail to preach that gospel, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, is we fundamentally misunderstand how it fixes everything. We can get excited about the idea that it does fix everything. Amen, yeah, hoorah, because we'll just have somebody else preach it, and then they'll fix all the problems. But we fail to understand how. What are the mechanics that bring about this fulfillment Thankfully, today's passage, today's verse, Jesus deals with this. He reveals to us how the gospel of the kingdom sets right everything that has gone wrong. So if you've got a Bible, I don't know if we're going to have screens. I don't care if we have screens. Secretly, I don't even like the screens. John chapter, it's not even a secret. People are like, that's not a secret. Uh, all that screens do for me is, is reveal to you that I dropped out of high school and don't know how to spell. You're all like, oh, he knows. Yeah, he knows. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love also when you take pictures of my misspellings and post them on the internet. It makes me feel really good inside. It makes me happy I made the life decisions I did at 15 years old. I love you. John chapter 8. Let's get to the Bible. John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, once you've got there, once you've either turned in your Bibles or on your phone, let's go ahead and stand to our feet. Hey, give it up for the screens. Give it up for the tech team. <laughs> We don't know if it's all going to work, but that worked. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 36, 31 through 36, here we go. It says, Jesus, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Catch these last two verses, 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, let's, let's pray together and ask God to give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are a living and active God, that you are here with us. You are not distant. You are not away from us, but you are right here, right now, in our midst. Lord, we celebrate you. We celebrate your goodness. We celebrate your faithfulness. And we celebrate the blessing that it is to be able to gather together back here in this building again, the blessing that it is to continue to stream this to people's home, to be a blessing to them there. God, we rejoice and all that you do, and all that you are. So from that place of, of thanksgiving, from that place of gratitude, we come to you and we declare that even in the midst of all of the goodness that you have shown to us, we are not satisfied with what has been done. We are hungry for what you are doing and what you will do. And so we ask right now that you give us ears to hear and a heart to receive. God, give us the supernatural capacity to hear what it is that you say. Lord, breathe life upon your word, but also breathe life upon our ability to hear your word. We don't want to just study a book. We want to hear a voice. A voice within a voice. God, not my voice, but your voice. So we come and ask that you would speak, that you would give us the ability to hear, but Lord, not just to hear, but but God, even the ability to receive, to, to take in, to, 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 to absorb that which it is you would say, let it cut through every argument, let it cut through every arrogance in our heart, let it cut through every preconceived notion, let it displace lie and error and bring about the fulfillment of all that you have sent it to do, thus setting us free for the good of all people and the glory and the praise and renown of your name. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Okay, greet one another. That's all I'm going to say. High five if you want. Don't high five. You don't elbow bump. Whatever you feel comfortable with. Amen, amen. Well, I would like to speak to you this morning, if I can, under the title, Welcome Home. It's our Welcome Home service. I figured it was appropriate, but it's also in the text. So, so under the title, uh, Welcome Home. Welcome Home. I want to look at what it means to be welcomed home into the household, into the family, into the life of God. Um, we, we've gone over this before, but one of the things that we need to learn to do as we approach the scriptures is we need to learn how to ask questions of the text, how to ask questions of the text. And so as we read this, I want to just start us out there. 
Questions I have for this text as I, as I read through this is, is what about deception? What is it about deception? What about deception produces bondage? Jesus says that, if, that, that we are in bondage. So what is it about deception that produces bondage? What is it about truth that delivers liberation? What is it about deception that brings us into bondage? What is it about truth that brings liberation? How, how does sin and error make us, make us slaves? And how does, how does truth make us free? What is it about these things that, 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 that work in this way? I believe that the reason for this, as you, some of you in the room already saw, is that misunderstanding, misunderstanding, hear me please, misunderstanding is misleading. Misunderstanding is misleading. Now, I know that might seem like a, a, a sort of a duh statement, but what I mean by that is that when, when we have the wrong information, track with me here for a second, when we have the wrong information, then that will lead us to the wrong destination. It's not just that we don't know, it's that it actually produces something genuine in our lives. Hear me now. It is important what you think. How you think, what you believe is important. What is truth and what is error? What is right and what is wrong? What is black and what is white? What is this and what is that? They, they, are, they are fundamentally important because when we misunderstand, when we, have a, when we have misinformation, it leads us to the wrong destination. It takes us to the wrong place. It leads us into bondage. It, it produces within us a slavery. So I'll say it this way. The, the misinformation about the nature of God produced humanity's rejection and rebellion of him, resulting in our bondage to the futility of sin. I'm going to read that again. Misinformation about the nature of God produced humanity's rejection and rebellion of God, resulting in our bondage to the futility of sin. I get all of that. That's my sort of summarizing Genesis chapter 3. If you're taking notes, study that on your own. That's, that's sort of my general summarization of, of Genesis 3. In that, we have the account of Adam and Eve have been created. They've been placed in the garden. They've been given all things richly to enjoy. God says, go, be fruitful, multiply. I don't know why that wasn't just what they were doing all the time, but whatever. And so they're off, and they're, they're there. And, and he says, but here's the deal. There's, there's a tree in the garden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil. Don't eat that tree. You eat that tree, you die. Seems simple enough, right? Well, the serpent, known as the deceiver, later known as the dragon, later known as Satan, the accuser, comes in and he, he, he gives, he sows, listen to me, he sows misinformation about the character and nature of God. He says, God does not tell the truth and he is not good. He says that, that what God told you would kill you, it won't kill you. It'll actually make you like it. It'll actually fulfill the purpose and the destiny that you know is abiding inside of you. It'll make you like God. He says, he tells them this lie. God hides good in what he says is bad. And if you just do what God says is bad, you'll actually be happier, healthier, and wealthier. If you just go against the, the creator, go against the one who made everything, if you just reject that, if he's not who you think he is, just eat this tree of everything you want. And that misinformation produced within us a rejection of who God is and ultimately rebellion against his commandments. And we know if you've read Genesis 3, it ultimately led to the futility. God says he subjected us to futility, the futility of sin. Sin. 
And this is the result. The result is the world we now live in. The broken systems and structures of a fallen world. Jesus comes and he, listen, he shatters our erroneous conceptions about who or how God is. He comes and he reveals to us. He displaces and dispels the falsehoods that we have come to believe about God. He rejects that which has come to us claiming that God is not good and God does not speak the truth. He shows us God. He sets right the distorted image of God. We see this even in John. Even even just thus far, even just eight chapters in, we see Jesus setting forth, setting right rather, our error in the way that we see God. In the very beginning, we see that, that, that God is creator. He shows us that in John chapter one, that God is ultimately the creator of all things. That all that we see and all that we know, all the beauty and all the majesty that we can experience, God is the creator of those things. That he is not, because Jesus came, he entered into that creation, that even though he's creator, he is not a distant, disinterested deity. Come on, somebody. He is here, he is now, he is present. He is intimately and actively involved in his creation. We see in John chapter 3, famous verse, that God loves, come on, and that he loves his creation personally, passionately, powerfully. Jesus Jesus points out to them that God is faithful to his his relationship, to his word, to his covenant with them. That he is committed, come on, to redemption, to reconciliation, and ultimately to the reclamation of us and the entire planet. And here in these past few verses, in the past little portions, we begin to see Jesus reveal to us ultimately God as Father. Abba. Father, our Father. He's setting right our wrong image of God. But, but how does seeing God accurately, the question I now have, how does seeing God accurately produce this liberty? How is it that seeing, okay, so I see God accurately now, but how does that produce within me some sort of liberty? I think verses 35 and 36 are the key to this. I'm going to read them one more time just into the record, verses 35 and 36. It says, the slave, Jesus speaking here, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I believe what Jesus is demonstrating here is that there is a divine exchange available when we begin to see God accurately. He dispels and displaces error, and something, an exchange happens, something floods into its place. Truth floods in. I think there's a few exchanges that we see here in verses 35 and 36. First, the exchange of dignity. He says we are not slaves. Come on, somebody. He sets us free. We are liberated from that bondage. But then it goes beyond that, and he exchanges our identity. So we're not just slaves, but now we're sons. Come on, how many of y'all are happy we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore? But it's better news. Come on, it's better news that we are now sons of God. We're not just not slaves, but we're sons. I love, I love uh, the way that, that, uh, that the, the Passion Translation, Dr. Simmons, the way he puts this. Can you guys throw that up? My thingy's not working here. Uh, I love the way he says this here. It'll come up eventually, I promise. It's really good. It's worth the wait. I like the way he translates 36. He said, so if the son sets you free from sin, then become a true son and be unquestionably free. How many people want to be unquestionably free? Well, the way you do that is not try really hard to not fall into sin. The way you do that, according to this verse, is just become a son. 
Because the sons are free. So he exchanges, come on, he exchanges our dignity, he exchanges our identity, and then last but absolutely not least, he exchanges our stability. He says, we'll be in the house, come on, forever. There's a security in our sonship. But then the, 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 the piece that jumped out at me so loud this week is one word. Verse 36, so. Everybody say so. When you say it loud enough so people can home and hear it. Show. Everybody at home, say it loud enough so we can hear it. <laughs> we'll get there. So, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. This means, fundamentally, that this exchange occurs not as a result of something we accomplish, but rather as something done on our behalf that we receive as a free gift. So if the sun sets you free, not so if you earn it, come on, not so if you merit it, not if you're good enough, smart enough, and if doggone enough people like you, but if the sun sets you free, that's how you get free, and that's how you get free indeed. It has to be something that is received. And I rushed through all of that text because I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna give us what I think might be the most amazing picture of sonship in all of the scripture, redemptive sonship in all the scripture. My favorite guy in the entirety of the Old Testament, Mephibosheth. Only a mom could like that name. <laughs> only, only, only a mom and dad would be like, you know what, let's put every, every weird phonetic thing into one name. Let's just do that and make sure he gets real good and beat up in school. I don't even wanna know the nicknames. I know you're already thinking of them. Maybe jot them down, send them to me later. Mephibosheth. Now, now the problem is, uh, some of you, and, and this is totally understandable, you're like, I'm pretty sure that's in Lord of the Rings, not in the Bible. Um, because he's not, he's not super well known. He's not one of the central characters, which is probably one of the reasons I love him so much. Mephibosheth is, is, is really just a little side character in the story of David. Now, if you've hung around the church for any time, amount of time, you probably know this guy, David. If you've hung around the culture very long, you know the, the term David and Goliath, the little guy who fights the giant, right? Well, that David who, who fought Goliath and, and won, he goes on to become king of all of the people of God, king of Israel. So he's made king. But before that, we, we've got we've to grab some key verses here just so you have some understanding. If you're somebody who likes to study out context, I did this just for you. You're welcome. Uh, you can get us some context to, to, to his life. So here's what we need to understand. When, when David comes on the scene and kills Goliath, another guy named Saul, everybody say Saul. Saul is king at that moment. But Saul has failed to, to, to walk in obedience, and so God has rejected him as king and anointed David as king. And so he, God's hand is upon David, and he elevates David in the nation. And Saul sees this, and, and in some moments in the early time, he can accept this and understand that, yeah, David's the next king. But at other times, his own sinfulness sort of gets the better of him, and, and ultimately, he gives into that fully. Ultimately, he becomes oppressed by, by evil, and, and, and ultimately, he tries to kill David. He turns fully against David. Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan would have been the heir apparent. He would have been next in line to inherit the kingdom from his father. So you'd think if anyone is going to be against David, it's going to be Jonathan. And yet, Jonathan somehow, or we're not really given too much clarity on this, but somehow, I believe, just reading into the text here a little bit, supernaturally, he's able to see that, no, 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 God's hand is not on me to become king. I see he's already lifted it from my father. It's on David. 
and their hearts are knit together. And we see in, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, they make a covenant. It's super important for us to understand. I don't have a ton of time to go over it, but they make a covenant. This is a, this is a, this is a binding contract, a binding commitment to one another. We see this in, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, where, where how this takes place. They, they make this covenant to be faithful to one another, to, to be with one another. Jonathan's saying, no, I'm for you. I'm not going to be against you. I'm not going to be like my father Saul. I, I want to be with you. And they, they exchange clothes, Jonathan giving over his royal robes and taking on David's warrior garb, his shepherd's tunic. He, they exchange. And then what's not in the text, but we know culturally they would have done, is they would have cut themselves, usually somewhere on their hand or forearm, and they would have mingled their blood together. And then oftentimes what they would do is take ash or soot or, or dirt or something and rub it into that wound so that it, so that it scarred and made a really big, gnarly, nasty scar. They did this for two primary reasons. It was so that if, if you came across somebody and you saw that they had a scar somewhere in their arm, you knew they were in covenant with somebody, so you knew, catch me, if you messed with them, you had to mess with somebody else later. So even if you beat this, this dude, you don't know how big his covenant brother is, so like leave him alone. But the other reason they did it was a reminder. It was a reminder for the one in covenant to fulfill all his requirements to the covenant. Because there was a penalty. If you did not, that penalty would be death. So time goes on until Saul finally gets to the point where he is just full on at war with David. He is done with David. He has rejected it all and he is going after David. And Saul, Saul's son Jonathan smuggles David out of the, the, the king's uh, control. And, 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 and in, in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17, Jonathan brings back up their covenant. He says, hey, David, I, I am for you, and, and, and because of our covenant, I'm getting you out of here, and I'm going to try my best to get my dad to see the error of his ways, but if he doesn't, here's the thing, I know God is going to deliver him into the hands of his enemies and ultimately going to kill him, and here's what I'm asking you, David, remember your faithfulness to me. When you come into your kingdom, remember your faithfulness, but... If my, if my proximity to my father causes that same judgment to fall on me, remember your faithfulness not only to me, but to my children as well. Culturally, we know they probably would have touched those scars back together, amending this covenant, saying, okay, we, we add this. So now it's not just between you and me, now it's between our children. So that's sort of the life that Mephibosheth comes into. Then we see, we get into 2 Samuel. God's judgment does fall upon Saul. He does die, so does Jonathan. News gets back to the palace. Mephibosheth at this point is five years old. And his caregiver, in haste, fearful that attacking armies might show up, fearful that David might show up as the new king and try to kill Mephibosheth, picks him up, grabs him. We're not given too much detail, but something about the way that she flees causes her to trip, fall, and land on Mephibosheth, breaking his feet and making him Cripple, not because of an error in his own life, but because of an error in somebody else's. He inherits brokenness. David then does come to the throne. Mephibosheth is smuggled away and hidden. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And David said, 
This is after David has, has, has brought peace to the kingdom, after he's set his, 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 his kingdom, his, his, his uh, rulers and officers in order. He's now, I believe, sitting on the throne, enjoying, come on, the fruits of his labor. And it says, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, catch this, for Jonathan's sake? I believe David was probably sitting on his throne, enjoying the fruits of his labor when he looked down and saw the scar and realized he had a covenant he needed to fulfill. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I love this. I am your servant. <laughs> Don't kill me. That's paraphrase, right? Like, I know I used to work for Saul, but I don't work for him anymore. I really, I was, I was always for you, David. <laughs> you and me, bro, like. We're good. You want your feet rubbed? He was like, good. He was just like, don't. I like my head where it is. I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, but show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Everybody say crippled. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Emil, at, the, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, catch that, please, underline, highlight, circle that. Verse 6, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage and David said, Mephibosheth! And Mephibosheth thought he was dead. And he said, behold, I am your servant. You get you in the, like, 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 I give up. <laughs> Tap out. <laughs> We're good. David said to him, do not fear. Come on. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the lands of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. If there's a more beautiful picture of what redemptive sonship looks like, I don't know. Mephibosheth has been in hiding his whole life. We find out later on, if you continue on, that he's old enough to have his own children. So, so decades maybe have gone by. And we're not given a lot of details around what Mephibosheth's life really looked like. But here's what we need to understand. Everything is screaming for David to kill Mephibosheth. 
culturally and, and just even, come on, just basic logic would say, hey, he's the heir of the previous king. If anybody wants to sort of rise up and try to take my throne, he's got a legitimate claim to it, I should just wipe him out. He's my enemy. By his birth, he's my enemy. Socially, it was not acceptable for the previous king's uh, offspring to remain alive or at least to not remain in the kingdom there. He would have at least been exiled, but most likely killed. And then on, on top of that, on top of that, culturally, cripples were not allowed in the royal palace. Everything is screaming for him to be killed. And yet, come on, a scar screamed louder. A covenant said no. A covenant said kindness. A covenant said faithfulness. Because of something Mephibosheth had no part in, he was now in line for a blessing he could not earn, nor could he merit. And the question then comes down to Mephibosheth, whose son would he be? Whose son is Mephibosheth going to be? Is, is he going to be a son of Saul? I, I, again, we don't have a lot of detail, but just, I got, I got the platform, so listen. <laughs> I think, I'm going to project my nature onto him. <laughs> I think he was probably raised his whole life being told, you are the son of Saul, that throne is yours. David weaseled his way into the, into the, into the courts of the king and got all the people to like him more than Saul and he somehow managed to get on the throne, but that is yours. I think, I think Jonathan, or sorry, Mephibosheth is, 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 has embraced the heart of Saul and has violence toward David. He's rejected God's plan. He's rejected God's purpose. I, I can see Mephibosheth in my mind, a cripple on his, on his crutches, grasping a knife, just waiting, hoping, looking for the day that he might be able to amass enough people around him to go and overthrow this king through insurrection, through whatever means, and plunge a knife into the heart of the one who he probably believed stole his throne, killed his father, and displaced his grandfather. He probably blamed David for everything. I get that from this text, looking into something that can be a little bit wiggly, so I say you don't have to agree with me on this, but but if you define the, the, the terms of who Mephibosheth was living with, Makar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Makar literally means sold. He's one who has been sold. Emil, his father, his name meant my kinsman is God. So he's someone who's sold away his relationship with God. This is the environment where, where Mephibosheth is being raised. This is why I think he was probably hostile to David. And Lodabar, everybody say Lodabar. Lodabar literally means the place of no word, no pasture, and no communion. That's the environment Mephibosheth, the crippled, displaced prince, is living in. And yet he comes into the presence of David. Come on. And I think he sees the folly of his ways. He realizes in that instant that there is no amount of people he could amass to overthrow this great, glorious, and good king. And so he falls on his face and says, I'm your servant. I, I, I give up. He's got to decide, does he want to remain a son of Saul? Or does he want to be 
a son of Jonathan. As Jonathan's son, he would have, he would have been the recipient of this covenant kindness. Come on, somebody. As Jonathan's son, as, 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 as finding his identity there, he would have been restored and, and would have been, been able to receive all that he would have inherited from his father. But he had to leave the violence and he had to leave the victimhood. Become a son of Jonathan. Embrace that and receive the benefit of being Jonathan's son. But the problem is, he's still crippled. He's still lame. He's still not whole. As Jonathan's son, he still bears in his body the, the, the ramifications of the carelessness of another. And despite all of David's kindness in restoring back his land, he even says, okay, here's some servants so they can till the land because clearly, come on, clearly Mephibosheth can't do it. So David says, don't worry about it. I'll make sure that your land is taken care of. It does not fall into disarray, that your house is in order. Here's, here's a guy with 15 sons. Hello. 20 servants. He'll take care of the land for you. But listen, you're still crippled. Still got this brokenness inside of you. You still have this pain inside of you. You still have these limitations inside of you. You're still going to be constantly reminded of your own brokenness unless, unless he embraces an even better message, even better news. Because he can be a son of Saul or he can be a son of Jonathan or, or he can be a son of David or he can be a son of of David and sit at David's table and have his crippled feet covered. Because at that table, he's not crippled anymore. At that table, he sits equal. Come on, at the table, we sit equal with all the other brothers. Nobody sees his broken legs. Nobody sees his broken feet. Nobody has to know about the, the mistakes and the errors. He is liberated from what used to hold him into bondage as he sat at the table as a son. Not of Saul and not of Jonathan, but David. He had to abandon violence and victimhood and even, come on, his own birthright. And say, I would rather be a son of a covenant than the son of Jonathan. David essentially opens up his arms to Mephibosheth and says, welcome home. This can be your home. This can be the place where you find your place and you find your peace and you find your purpose. The interesting part of this that, that we miss from where we stand I mentioned it earlier. Do you remember it? If you break covenant, if you fail to, to fulfill covenant, which for, John, for Mephibosheth right now is simply receiving this free gift. That's his part of the covenant right now. The penalty for rejecting that is death. You see, this is a beautiful picture of what happens to us. Jesus makes a covenant on our behalf. We become the recipient of this covenant. 
Not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we can merit or earn, but simply because of his love and his goodness, we become the recipients of a covenant we could not make for ourselves. And so the question becomes, are we going to hold on, come on, to our privilege, to our victimhood, to our guilt, to our status, to our race, to our gender, to our nationality, to our political affiliation, to our style, to our dietary alignments, to whatever we might try to find our identity in, or will we let go of all those things and simply and solely be a son of God? That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our fulfillment. That's where we find our security. That's where we find our dignity. It's there. And guess what? He sets before us, David even says this, Psalm 23, a table before us in the presence of our enemies, a place where our crippled, broken bodies are covered by the bread and by the blood. If there's a better picture of the redemption of the sons of God, I don't know it. So like Mephibosheth, We are broken and we are fallen by the failings of another and by our own futility. And yet offered to us is not just the restoration of all that was lost, but the healing. Come on, it's in our name as a church. Sozo, healed, saved, redeemed, set right again. So whose son will you be? You're going to be son of Adam. You're going to embrace the rejection and rebellion of our first father. Are you going to be a son of the culture you were raised in? Or will you be a son of God? This is how the gospel makes right everything. He makes everything right. Whose son? Will you be able to invite the team to come back up? I like this. The timer got messed up, so I have no idea how far over I've gone. Because, you know, I would have cared so much about that. would have known. I want to invite us. We can go ahead and stand to our feet. We're going to move to close here. I want to invite us to respond in this morning. Let's just throw all these up. I want to invite us to, whether you're here or whether you're at home, I want to invite us to come to the throne, to step into the presence of God, an awareness of the presence of God. We, 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 need, we need to move into an environment. I, I, I know this might sound a little weird for some of you, but I think you'll be able to track with me. I, I need us in this moment. I feel we, we need in this moment to step out of the noise and the chaos that surrounds us, the 24-7, 365, constantly on every screen, bombardment of, listen to me, noise. And just for one moment, in this time, step into the throne room. Step into his presence. Step into an awareness of who he is. And then come to the king. Some of you are here, you've got jacked up pictures of who God is. Whether you're here or whether you're watching, I don't know, but you've got some jacked up views of who God is and how God is. And he wants to set those things right in your understanding right now. And the good news is it's not about getting, listen, it's not about getting an education. It's not about receiving information. It's about receiving an impartation where Jesus comes and he shows you all of these things. God is not disinterested. He is not distant. He is here. He is with you right here and right now. 
God is not who the culture told you he was. God is not who religion told you he was. God is not who your failings told you he was. God is not who your, 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 your misunderstanding, your misinformation has informed you that he is. No, he is good, he is gracious, he is beautiful, he is better, come on church, than everything. He's better, he's just better. So as we come into his presence and we see him, the invitation then comes to come to the table. I've been excited to be able to worship together in this room again. Preaching here without you people sucks. I'm just going to be totally honest. I know I'm not supposed to say that word from the platform. I'm sorry, Todd. Worship without people to worship with is is at least 72% more awkward than with people to worship with. I've been really excited about this, but if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna be transparent as your pastor, the thing that I've missed the most is being able to come to the table together. I know for some some of us, we were raised in traditions in the church that just said, well, communion is just a symbolic thing. It doesn't really matter. Who really cares? It's just something we kind of do. That's why we only do it like four times a year. Maybe if you're super spiritual, like once a month. And it's why when we started this journey, we said, no, we're going to remember this every time we gather together. And so one of the things I'm excited about is to be able to go back to coming to the table again because it's a reminder of how we become sons. We don't become sons because because we somehow are good enough or we figured stuff out or we have our theology right. Most of us don't, let's just be honest. We become sons because the son made a way for us. He paid a debt he didn't owe. He defeated an enemy that was not his. He made a way that he did not need for himself, but we needed broken body and his shed blood and his resurrection. And that's what communion reminds us. So the way we take communion now is is, is gonna change for at least a season. At the back as you came in, we've got these cups. And I wanna just say to those at home, We've, we've put together packets, so as we start to do this again as part of our, as part of our gathering, you're welcome to come by the church. The, the offices are, are, are going to be open again in our normal hours. People will be here, so you can come by and, and pick up. We have some packets of these, so you can begin to partake in this with us if your conscience allows you to do that. I know some people believe you shouldn't do this unless you're together, and we leave that as an open-handed issue here at the church. But we're going to have these available, or you can just get elements if you have them at your home. Some grape juice really crazy, some wine, some bread if you're really crazy, some unleavened bread, just go all in. I'm excited to be able to invite us to come to the table, and and, and by saying that, I want to be sure I'm clear, this is something given to believers to do. If you're here and a guest with us, this is something Christians do. We're not going to ask you to pretend like you're a Christian if you're not. However, if you're here and you're a believer, you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to have gone here before. You don't have, there's no secret handshake or code word. You're welcome to participate with us because there's one table that we all go to. Come on. There's one table. All of us. Come on, in a time, in a season that's this awkward and this divided and this separated, how good is it to have one table to come to as a family? 
all of our differences and all that, that, that culture tells us should divide us can just be set aside because it was his broken body. It was his shed blood that made the way. So he invites us to repent and believe, to admit and abandon our rejection and rebellion against him, to let go of the sin that, 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 that subjects us to the futility of bondage and slavery and to embrace Jesus and entrust our lives to him and trust that his death, that his burial, that his resurrection made a way when nothing else could. So as we respond, as we enter into his presence, as we see his face, as we come to the table, as we sing, as we celebrate, I want to invite us at any moment, any time in this moment to partake as you feel led. But remember, this is a table set before you, even in the presence of our enemies. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to, we're going to respond. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your goodness toward us. Thank you for bringing us back together. And thank you also, Lord, that there is still a way for those who are not able to physically be with us to still be a part of this, to still be with us. Now, thank you for that. We rejoice in your goodness. Lord, I ask that as we move into this response, here in this building, in our homes, wherever we are, God, that you would just begin to reveal your presence to us. We know that you are in all places at all times, and yet there's also a unique thing that you do where you make yourself known, and that's what we're asking for right now. Lord, I also ask that you would would displace and dispel the misinformation that has flooded into our lives about who you are that our wrong ideas about you would be displaced right now in an instant and freedom would come flooding in. God, I ask that you grant repentance and faith to those who need it here today. God, that you would move mightily on our behalf. In Jesus' name, church, let's respond to the Lord.